I'm David Smith, and you're listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. In this series, we'll be talking with researchers and educators who are working to understand how Christian faith affects teaching, learning, and the way we do education. With me here this afternoon is Luke Bretherton, who's Professor of Theological Ethics and Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke Divinity School. So Luke's here for the Kaiser Institute Conference, which is something that happens uh, every couple of years. And it's a tradition at this conference that for one of our plenary presentations, we find someone who is eminent in a field that is not the topic of the conference, right? So, and we, and we kind of, the conference is about teaching and learning and, and what that has to do with faith. And so we look for a philosopher or a theologian or a literature person or something. And so you're our theologian this time. Ah, and we've no. asked you to talk about teaching and learning. So, <laughs> um, so, so tell us a little bit what you're planning to share. What did that do in your head when we said, please come and talk about an area that's not your area of special expertise? Well, when you, when you initially asked me, I was like, no, please don't ask me. I'm going to have to think about something completely outside of my <laughs> uh, field. But then when I kind of thought about it more, I've been doing a, a lot of work around the theme of conversion. Um, and one of the, obviously the kind of key things in thinking about conversion in the Christian tradition is whether that's a kind of sudden moment of change or whether it's a slow process of change, a journey or, or a pilgrimage. And uh, in kind of if you look through the Christian tradition, the questions around, you know, obviously in ancient Greece, the notion of paideia, but, but the kind of cultural formation of the person in the virtues, or then going into the German tradition of Bildung, and on we have it in the kind of legacy in a certain liberal arts tradition in, in, in the States, which something like Calvin uh, University picks up on in many ways. Um, there are the, cent the centrality of uh, education and schooling and higher education to a process of formation, which I think is probably best named as conversion. Um, now, I'm acutely aware when you say a word like conversion, it, it gives everyone the heebie-jeebies mm -hmm. and it's very associated with either a kind of colonial domination or pie in the sky when you die, kind of individualistic salvation. So part of my interest is, is recovering that term because I think it is a very central one and actually a very, very rich one we've kind of lost the use of. So what I'm going to be, what I want to kind of think through is what happens when we reimagine education as a process of conversion. I think it is inherently a process of conversion. Mm -hmm. People pay a lot. I teach at Duke. People pay a lot of money to come to Duke. If, if you're the same at the end of your four years at Duke mm -hmm. and you haven't pretty much changed how you understand the world and engage uh, others around you, we've pretty much failed, you know. So we need to own the fact that Actually, it is a conversionary process, any process of, of education uh, that we're inviting people into. And that's kind of what they're signing up for. Uh, but I would say that's the same in lots of kind of institutional forms where there is a, supposed to something supposed to happen to you through mm -hmm. that process. I think the other thing I'm kind of interested brings me to the to the topic is I feel like in the particular moment I spent a lot of my day job teaching and writing around political theology and the interaction of Christianity and politics. And if we look at the contemporary moment, this, I feel we're kind of caught in two very different visions of how to imagine and narrate change uh, that conflict with each other and I think are very un-Christian. So one is this idea that uh, if we want to, for example, make America better again, we need to go backwards. We make America great again. And this ties into a very ancient idea, 
you go back to renew, so reformation, renaissance. Uh, you have to go back to an Arcadia, to an mm -hmm. Eden, to a golden age. So it's not in the sense that we can get caught up in whatever the phrase make America greater means, America great means. But there is this idea that real change, good change comes from going back. And there's a whole tranche of folk in the States and in Europe and elsewhere for whom that's the way forward, mm -hmm. paradoxically, is to go backwards. There's another set of folk, no, 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 the past is bad. We've got to progress away from the past, all that is of the past, tradition, religion, all these kind of things. These are bad. These have to be left behind. The kind of foul accretion of ages mm -hmm. past needs to be shed. Um, and so we need to go forward to be on the right side of history. Now, that's quite a modern idea. You know, we can talk about Hegel and Marx and these kinds of figures. But the, the sense in which um, good Good, what is good and right and proper comes through going forward is the way. And I think a properly Christian understanding, and I think this is, does tie into how we understand education, is if we think about baptism, it's both we recover a self that's been lost through sin and idolatry, and there's a moment of rupture of entering into an eschatologically given self. We're born again. So change in a theological imagination is properly paradoxical. It's mm. neither conservative nor progressive. It's paradoxical. And so when we're looking at change, and, I, and when we actually think about our own experiences of change, or when we think about um, serious you know, processes of social political change, we see that it does have this paradoxical quality. You get it famously in Augustine's Confessions. It has mm -hmm. this kind of, his, his account is long you know, disquisition on memory and this kind of, but the sense in which we're always both recollection, uh, mm -hmm. recovery, and there's a and there's a new beginning. There's a there's a point. There's a shift. A new a new paradigm is emerging, and when we give accounts of these things, we tend to favour one or the other. It's a paradigm shift. It's all new, uh, or it's development. It's emerging out of the old, and and we're very we have we're we're not very good at thinking this 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 paradoxical nature of change together. And yet I do think it's central to any of our personal or, or kind of broader collective mm -hmm. experiences of change. And that's why I think, yeah, so I just want to kind of think about that in relation to education. So some of these words you're surfacing here, I mean, we've, we, you know, we've got a tradition hundreds of years old of thinking of educational change, like whatever happens to us between when we start learning and when we think yeah. we're done learning as, as development, right? right? Child development, faith development, yeah. cognitive development, et cetera, or as organic growth, yeah. right? There's sort of all the plant metaphors and, yeah. and so on. I, it feels like a lot of people right now want to talk about transformation a lot. Right. Yeah. Um, although I've, I've never really been totally clear what any given person means by that. <laughs> right. um, but what do you think the word conversion, because clearly, you know, it comes with some baggage, there's yep. some potential liabilities there. So what are, what are the specific gains over against the alternatives that outweigh the baggage, do you I think, think in terms of I think it wrestling has with this, that language? I think it has this notion. The, the problem with all of the languages you just laid out is, is, is either this sense of continuity, um, think about development, has that notion, or, mm -hmm. or there's a sense of total rupture, transformation, paradigm shift, this kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, I think neither of these are adequate to the realities of how we experience change or and they are also inadequate to the theological uh, frameworks we drive 
we kind of derive from scripture for thinking about personal and broader social changes. Mm -hmm. So if we think about the language of change in scripture, particularly in the New Testament, I mean, it derives building particularly out of Old Testament notions of shuv, um, of the turning away, and turning can be both turning away, turning to, uh, turning from, turning completely around, so the kind of revolution idea. But it's it's always contingent on the nature of the change that needs to happen. Some change does need to be emergent or developmental. Some mm -hmm. needs to be revolutionary, transformational. Mm -hmm. The spirit acts how the spirit will act to call forth and evoke the change needs to happen. And we see this in scripture. So uh, the kind of key terms are epistropho or epistrophine, which means to turn away or turn from or turn to, to some notion of turning. Uh, and obviously the metanoia and metanoi, or I don't know how you say it, say it but, but that notion of repentance is this key, is this notion of turning. And then the other key language, um, two other languages we get is coming out of Paul, the, the notion of calling um, and the sense that you're both calling is both uh, an enablement, you're both enabled to change, to become what you're called into and that you yourself must change and, and move into this new state of being. And then tied to that, obviously, are, are a kind of whole cluster of messages, darkness to light, fruitlessness to fruitfulness, um, and a whole range of things that indicate some notion of both a drawing on, a coming to fulfillment, mm -hmm. and at the same time, a sense of superabundant newness or mm -hmm. fullness. And so if we're going to have, I think, a properly theological notion of change, that's where I think conversion is a much, much richer term. I mean, I, I understand that it has baggage, but so do lots of terms, mm -hmm. atonement, mm -hmm. all these things have, you know, but, but actually if, if part of the task of theology is, actually, is laying out uh, the richness and fruitfulness of a term like conversion, I think it can seed different ways of imagining and seeing the world and, and particularly I think both in the in terms of the realm of politics and in the realm of education how we understand change is pretty central so I think we have quite a thin I would say rather anemic language of change mm -hmm. I think we need a much richer language and, and for me the term conversion ha is is the kind of traditioned term we, sh we, we should recover yeah. so so what what has this done for you in your in your own mind and in your own work as you've thought about conversion what you know the changes don't have to be complete mm. yet right this is this is all process for all of us but what do you see changing in your own teaching and how you think about preparing for your teaching as as this becomes your right. your theological frame for thinking about it that's a very good very good question i think one good example of this is a course i've i've taught for a number of years called listen organize act which is precisely focused on how do people in Christian ministry or working in faith-based uh, organizations or some form of social activism engage in some kind of social change on the basic assumption that the world as it is is not the world as it should be. And so there's some kind of journey, some kind of change needs to take place. And so then what are the kind of mechanisms and modalities of change that we engage with? So one of the things I've been thinking about this, and, and one of the things at the heart of conversion is is that change isn't just a question of changing your ideas. We, we that's a very very kind of modern notion of literally becoming woke. I mean, obviously, it has strong resonances with Plato. You change of consciousness is a kind of change of cognitive process. But I think also we need to think about 
change of posture, change of bodily, how we inhabit the world bodily, change of patterns of relations, orthopathy, what are right feelings. And so how does one teach a course on social change and how people in Christian mission and ministry can, can approach that that encompasses this kind of multiple dimensions itself in the process of learning? Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I I used to teach a version of this course in uh, the UK, in London, and most of my students were uh, mid-career professionals. They were Salvation Army officers, Catholic priests, Anglican clergy, or they were running homeless charities, a huge amount of experience. They had, you know, whole hospitals under their care. And I was a kind of young whippersnapper who kind of read a lot of interesting ideas, but they, they had this wealth of experience. My job was, was to provide frameworks of through which they could then interpret their experience throw their experience against a a range of uh, frames of reference now one of the things they they understood the world of kind of social science and social analysis they'd had to you know work work out demographics of homelessness or that you know that was something they're familiar with it was a long time since they'd done theological education that was Mm -hmm. that was many moons ago and so what i in that first iteration of this of this particular kind of course was using social science frameworks through which then they could understand. I, it was almost as if they would have a sense of, you know, you've been reading my mail. So a good example is how do, if you're a Christian charity, negotiate issues of state funding? It's a key kind of problem. And there's this classic kind of frame of reference called institutional isomorphism. It's a terrible term. <laughs> um, but it basically means as an institution, you, you tend to mimic the form and structure of your funder. So if your primary funder is a state agency, uh, if you're running a mothers and toddlers group or a homeless charity, you're going to take on the goals and processes and institutional forms of that funder. And it's just, and there's various ways that can take. You give people that term and they're like, well, that's exactly, you've just given me the way of naming my experience. This is exactly the problem we had. We were always fighting against it. And how do we stop a kind of creeping secularization process just that, that would come with the water we were swimming in? Now, so that was something that you could, we could all then name our shared experience. And then the theological frames of reference, well, how do we analyze that and think that through? And how do we understand church-state relations theologically mm-hmm. and different models of that? Now, I moved to the States 2012 and very different demographic. The students were median ages 23, 24, most of them straight out of college, just lovely, lovely students. But they hadn't been running charities and they hadn't been running large-scale institutions. And so I tried a version of this course and we had the social science element, we had the theological element and there's some political philosophy there. And these were just a series of loose-fitting, interesting ideas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought, this is entirely failing. This is not helping them kind of ground their experience and weave the theology so that they can be more faithful in their practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got to radically change this course, attentive to actually who's in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things, so I incorporated, they have to do so many hours of civic engagement in the course. And then the final exercise... Um, is they have to kind of analyze their involvement in that uh, practice using all the learning from the course. We also, I also incorporated elements of actual training in forms of practice. So the primary element of focus of the course is both community organizing and community development as kind of models of 
social transformation and how they can incorporate that into church practice so that we do things like how do you do a one-to-one which is a kind of specific kind of relational meeting uh, and listening exercise how do you do a, a power analysis also things like how do you pay attention to your body and so i used the notion of mulling and and how where do you actually give yourself the time to listen to your body as a kind of barometer of what's going on so i do a whole session on what's going on with me what's going on around us uh, what, uh, what's going on with us i.e the, the group or institution or community or congregation you're part of and then what's going on around us so that these three levels of kind of ref- critical reflection on practice both myself the immediate people i'm working with and then the kind of broader social or political analysis but paying attention to the kind of somatic learning that the embodied learning that, that they can carry with them as, as it were and teach mm-hmm. them skills around that as well as then broader frameworks of analysis and they have to do a book review and but again with things like the book review there's one which is a more theologically focused one and then i make them do one for example on an eth- ethnography or a, or a deep sociological analysis of a faith-based organization so that they're given a model of how do you here's someone who spent several years doing a detailed kind of insider account of a particular institution, organizational ministry, so that they're given a kind of 3D picture mm-hmm. of, a, of a description of, an, of a, working, uh, a working organization. And, and that, that itself is a training in how to kind of pay attention in a bigger frame of reference. So that was just an interesting case of how do you have, have kind of several plates spinning in a course, take seriously who's in the room and, and either their mm-hmm. prior experience or lack thereof, build in experience and help equip them on, on and thinking about in a kind of multi-dimensional way how you actually enact change mm-hmm. in, in communities and in congregations that you're going to engage with. So what are those students being converted from and to? Oh, good question. I think there are a number of things really one would be uh, they uh, often, I think, come in with uh, lots of heart, but a little sense of how you actually do anything. And so it's it's their com- com- one would be from, uh, I, I guess, a kind of naivety and lack of knowledge to a greater awareness and, and, and a sense of what it takes to actually uh, cultivate change and then some sense of how you do it. But I think also a key element of the change is is opening up their imagination. So, so one of the key sessions in the course, we do a whole session about how we think about the secular. Because one of the central things in Christian faith-based organizations or, or minist- any form of ministry I've encountered in doing workshops all over the world, really, is the ways in which folk adopt a, a kind of self-censorship because they think that the secularization narrative, that to be modern is to be less religious just is true so again that directly affects how you then go around doing social change and and so we need to kind of unpack that script that's in their head and so one of the things i think the change that takes place is a a far richer sense of what it means to do christian work Mm outside of either kind of Weber's iron cage. No, the only way to be effective is to do a kind of uh, bureaucratic rationality and kind of, you know, cause and effect kind of ways of doing things. And actually think, what what does it mean to take 
questions of agency and power central rather than kind of bureaucratic efficiency and administrative process mm-hmm. central. And that is a key, key kind of element. of, And that, that does take a change of imagination. And aligned with that is a kind of central, and it's there in the course title, Listen, Organize, Act. Mm-hmm. How do we begin with listening rather than, and all the time I think they, they're with precisely the love in their hearts, they want to jump to the question of what is to be done. And of course, Christians always, and particularly evangelicals, want to jump to the question of what is to be done. And I always, I always, this is my little joke to them. I always say it's a dangerous question to be asking first, because that's, of course, Lenin's question. He writes this famous pamphlet, What is to be done? We should really ask Marvin Gaye's question first, which is what's going on? Mm-hmm. And actually, if you begin by asking first what's going on, you begin by listening. Mm-hmm. And then you're attentive to the reality of the situation and you're, you're, you put persons or people before program. Mm-hmm. And so much, I think, Christian work is it begins with program uh, before people. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, a key conversion is just a, a change of orientation to reality to begin with listening and, and develop ministries and missions born out of listening first that then are able to actually genuine cultivate meaningful relationships with people mm-hmm. and, and that actually are themselves are orientated towards cultivating real change rather than fulfilling quotas, meeting, you know, some programmatic demand mm-hmm. or simply trying to recruit people to some ideologically determined program. And, mm-hmm. and there's so much, whether Christian or non-Christian, that's, that's really what's going on mm-hmm. rather than trying to attend to what does it mean for these people in this place at this time to flourish and cultivate more faithful, hopeful, and loving forms of life together. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is the key conversion, really, that I'm, I'm seeking, that mm-hmm. they, if, if there's the kind of technical knowledge that they can pick up, but it's much more how do I take, take them out of a what-is-to-be-done orientation right. to a what-is-going-on and who who's you know who is here who yeah. who really is who's god given me to work with so two moments that chimes with for me recently one was sitting in a meeting looking at some draft a, a draft statement of curricular purpose right. and there was a sentence in there that said we want students to you know acquire skills of reading writing speaking yeah. uh, there was a whole bunch of active verbs in there and yeah. there's actually realizing in the room that listening might not have been a bad thing on that list, but right, wasn't right. wasn't included because yeah. it didn't seem like this sort of active skill. And then reading, you know, some of Robert Alter's commentary on uh, on on Genesis, and him mm-hmm. just sort of pointing out that that Abram enters the story in Genesis by being spoken to, right? right? That he enters yeah, the yeah. story as a listener, yeah, um, as an yeah, addressee, yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than as primarily an actor, right? right. And a, and a, so. I think I, so I, just a word on that. I mean, I think that is, I, I do think listening is a sacred act mm-hmm. for Christians. It, sh- it should be the primary act. And, and it's there, it's written into, obviously, uh, in, in the Jewish faith, the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. Right. So that the first, the kind of the address comes to us through hearing. And obviously, it's in, in Romans, the kind of uh, hearing the word of Christ. It's, and so the, the, the first act, the constitutive act of the people of God is to listen, through which we're then able to hear with God, God's hearing of the world. Now, it's not, you can mm-hmm. privilege certain kinds of senses, but there is a sense in which it's, it's interesting, it's not the gaze, 
Um, it's not action. It's not smell. There is something about hearing that I think is, is trying to communicate something to mm. us about a certain orientation. My, my father always used to drive me crazy. He'd, he'd, I'd, we'd argue intensely and he, he'd, he'd always say, Luke, you're born with two ears and one mouth and God's trying to tell you something about that. <laughs> yeah. it was many, many years later and much theological deliberations uh, kind of under my, uh, passed under the bridge and I realized to my utter chagrin that he was, he was right yeah. and I was wrong. <laughs> when, when I used to teach beginning language courses, I, I would ask students what was at stake in the fact that we pretty much always talk about the ability to speak German, to speak right. Spanish, to speak Italian, but we never ask, can you hear German? Can right, you right. hear Italian? Can you hear Spanish? Yeah. As if the only reason we learn a language is so we can bless more of the world with our well, opinion, we, right? right? And uh, good, not yeah. because there are people who speak the language that we might not be able to listen to right now. So so on on the assumption that it, 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 it seems like there's something basic about listening and it also feels like it goes against the grain, like we're better at speaking and acting and, and, and so on. So how do you go about trying to help your students get if listening is the first step right, in the right, course, right. Right, 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 it almost seems like you're taking the hardest thing and trying to start right. there. So right, right. How, do you, how do you handle that? How do you start teasing your students towards that stance early in a course? Right. Um, uh, so I think, no, it's a very good question. I think uh, one of the things, so I do uh, various things around um, listening, one of which is teaching this practice of, of doing a, of, of kind of the relational meeting or, or the one-to-one, which comes out of community organizing. Uh, so, and, and kind of, teaching around that as to why that's so important and and within that simple practice we get a sense that if we're going to design a program it has to be born out of not simply listening to others but also kind of building relationship with them through the process (laughs) of listening so one of the through through teaching on that simple act of the one-to-one it inducts them into the sense that you can't begin a, a kind of program other than through a kind of relational process. And so the listening is not just listening through survey data or um, sending out an email. It's a relational process of listening. And so I do quite a bit of teaching around the, in, in that particular course, around the nature of what we understand as neighbor love and the sense of which it's not just listening with our ears, but if we think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, the Good Samaritan in the New Testament Greek is espelanthes, he's moved in his entrails, it's listening with our gut. And so how do we pay attention, not simply to what we're moved in our guts, and again, this is kind of somatic learning, but also how are other people being eviscerated, that it be literally disemboweled, emptied out of their ability to listen and therefore listen with their guts and therefore be moved to compassionate action with and for others because that's where we're that's the kind of seat through which we're moved to act and there's no transformational change or movement to change if people aren't moved to act with and for others and so it's it's one thing to have listening and have a kind of cognitive recognition Mm -hmm. it's quite another to be moved in your entrails to act with and for others and so both that sense of that listening has to be a relational process and then what's inhibiting people from hearing in their guts and the kind of laying out, I, I do some teaching around what I call uh, the, the, the politics of respectability, whether that's our kind of professional identities that keep us constrained uh, or uh, just kind of bourgeois notions of respectability or church cultures of, of a kind of certain deference to authority. None of these things are necessarily wrong in themselves, but they become straitjackets to really 
hearing from other kinds of voices or hearing different kind of cries and so we also that's tied into teaching around lament as as the how do we listen to the laments of others the other the two other quickly the two other aspects of that is the politics of denunciation which doesn't want to listen because it already knows what the answer is mm -hmm. and is just trying to recruit people to its ideological driven cause and is constantly kind of denouncing everyone else and that's certain kinds of political activism whether on the left or the right fall into that or or a kind of politics of escape whether that's escape into gated communities into you know standard pastoral problems of drug abuse pornography it's like, you know the kind of withdrawal from the world which which de-skill us from being able to really connect to uh, hear in our entrails others around us and hear the hear the cries uh, of what needs to change and so i think in scripture and in politics change often begins with a cry and scripture is a very noisy text when you read it and there's all sorts of cries and wails and laments and this kind of stuff going on but actually that is the beginning of cry i think particularly paradigmatically in many ways exodus begins with the cry of the people going up to yahweh and and, and he's moved to act a change mm -hmm. to bring about change and so who are we listening to how are we listening with just our ears or in our guts mm -hmm. Um, and, and are we really in a place to, to hear? And then also teaching around how the act of listening itself is a form of witness. It says in a highly divided world that says we have nothing in common because either we're just consumers who just share market exchanges or we're locked into kind of silos of cultural or ethnic difference just connected by histories of violence. Mm -hmm. It says if you actually take the time to listen to someone, it says you matter, you've got something to say, I can learn from you. And so it's a, it's, it, and then I think theologically, it also says whatever the difference, whatever the division between you and I, the love of God connects us in Christ, that Christ is the source of all creation and the fulfillment of all creation. There's a deeper truth which by my simple act of listening, I'm bearing witness to. Um, and so I think there's a lot at stake. So I do a lot of teaching around that as why it's a very theologically freighted term and why it's absolutely central as to how we're properly orientated to reality and therefore can act appropriately. Otherwise, we're always acting on our projected fantasies, anxieties, fears, mm -hmm. or, or whatever. So we, it seems to me we're still pulling on the same thread here that Christian teaching and learning might be a process of helping or provoking or framing a conversion to listening to God and listening to neighbor. Yeah. And that goes a little bit against the culture of some of our ways of uh, of thinking about learning in terms of autonomy or in terms of just transmission Absolutely. or auth authoritative lecturing yeah. or yeah. whatever. It's, and I uh, think, it's I mean, of, uh, ultimately, I mean, this, this sense of conversion to, we might think of it as how we properly attune to and participating in the God-given reality, which I didn't make, I don't control, but I can be attuned to, can be, can participate in, and, and the and the mode of participation depends on the quality and character of my relationship with others. And so it's a conversion to not, I know a thousand books, but ultimately it seems to me it's a conversion to, am I able to attune to and participate in and do so in a way through a kind of in, in a virtuous way that genuinely cultivates flourishing 
uh, with, with others, with and for others. And it seems to me that's really everything else is in service to that mm -hmm. of, of, a, of a hopeful, loving, faithful modes of participation. Well, that's a good note to finish on. Um, I'm not sure there's things in here that we could uh, we could continue plumbing for hours, but uh, but thank you. That was very rich. Pleasure, uh, pleasure. Great honour to be here. You've been listening to the Faith in Teaching podcast from the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning at Calvin University. Learn more at www.pedagogy.net. <laughs> <laughs>